Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host Daniel Larison as we endeavor each week to give a platform to the voices of realism, restraint, and good old-fashioned common sense. In the second segment, we will be talking to author Ali Wynn, a macro geopolitical expert on the dangers of using great power politics as a framework for U.S. foreign policy. But first, let's talk about another danger, and that is the continuation of a U.S.-led security system in Europe. An insightful new article published in War on the Rocks this week by Alexander Sorg and Julian Wusserfenning, two German international relations experts, argues that the cycle of dependency has got to stop. According to their own research, which included scanning years of European public surveys, as well as a new focused poll of Germans, they have found that European citizens are increasingly wary of the U.S. military footprint in their countries, but at the same time, the willingness of the United States to provide the security umbrella to Europe has meant that these Europeans are less committed to building their own militaries and deterrence. In other words, they are enabling the current conditions while chafing against it at the same time. But it's a bit more complicated. Europeans, according to their polling, see ambitious defense efforts, such as investments in their national military, which they see as being potentially corrupted by the United States and a foreign agenda, another reason for having less interest in big defense projects, according to the two authors. This comes at a time when Biden has pledged a new permanent military headquarters in Poland, the deployment of F-35 jets to Britain, and troop deployments to Romania. Earlier this year, the Biden administration had already approved the additional deployment of 20,000 troops to Europe and a new total of over 100,000 U.S. troops on the continent. So, Dan, it would seem that a desire on the part of realists, myself included, to see the Europeans take over their own security so that the U.S. can begin reducing its global military footprint and focus on its own interests is complicated by the fact that Europeans have not been investing in their own defense and no one wants to leave them hanging, especially at this time of geopolitical tumult. So where do we go from here? Well, so I think the thing that was interesting about the article is that it showed that there was that there were a couple of reasons why European publics and European governments were not committing to greater military spending. Uh, one is that they didn't need to because the U.S. was already filling the role uh, that they would be filling. And the other was that the presence of U.S. troops actually uh, turned those publics uh, off of, of the idea of security spending because they actually felt threatened by the U.S. presence more than reassured by it. And so I, I think what we have to do is, is think, first of all, look at the way that the, the publics are viewing it and understand that they're taking, I think, a different view of it than their own governments in many cases. Uh, the the survey of the German public uh, showed that they were actually more interested in boosting their military spending if the U.S. withdrew some or all of its troops from German territory. So we're, we're actually, by being there, we're actually discouraging them from taking up the role that we think that they should play. Um, Meanwhile, their government uh, is, is very reluctant to actually up military spending in a big way because they they feel that they don't have to as long as the U.S. is prepared to, to fill that gap. So we I think we have to, in some sense, we have to appeal to the, the publics in our allied, in European allied countries uh, 
to, to get them to pressure their own governments to, to do the things, uh, to, to build up their own security spending, uh, to show people in the U.S. that they are willing to do it, provided that we get out of their way. Uh, and I, I don't know how, how we best communicate that to uh, allied publics, but, but I think we, we get hung up on the, the demands from allies uh, more than looking at, at what their capabilities could be. And so we're, we're always so eager to cater to those demands that we, we, we miss the fact that there are, there are opportunities there uh, to, to share burdens with them uh, if we would actually listen to what the, the people in those countries are actually want. Yeah, and what do you think about this um, second wrinkle um, that I mentioned in the opening? And I don't think this was the, the the focused polling, the new polling that they did of the German people, but the survey over time of European public opinion that there was a hesitancy for even domestic spending or at least spending uh, their own uh, money on on defense because they felt like all the defense was part of a U.S.-led foreign agenda, and that it could be corrupted. Uh, I didn't want to make—I didn't know what to make of that, but it does—it does complicate matters because that's even saying that these—that that many of these countries don't want to to invest the money to create their own security systems outside of the of the United States, even if they had the ability to. Right. I mean, the way I took that is that when the U.S. has a large military presence in their country or in their region, uh, they see that as not being about providing uh, for their own defense. It's about pursuing uh, a U.S. agenda right. uh, that, that treats them essentially as instruments or pawns in that agenda. And so they don't want to be exposed to the risks that come with that, uh, and, and therefore they become more... Uh, anti-militarist, I guess you could mm -hmm. say. They become more uh, wary of, of anything that sounds like a military buildup because they fear that they're playing into or feeding into that uh, risky agenda. There was one line in the article that, that was very helpful in, in clarifying that, where they say uh, that U.S. deployments can scare host state populations, which, you know, I think coming from the U.S., a lot of people don't think of our deployments in allied countries as being frightening to the people in those countries, but, but they can be, uh, they can be perceived as, as a potential threat because it makes them a potential target. Um, and as the article says, uh, this is because some citizens fear being entrapped in a war caused by the provocative posture of an overly risk friendly guardian. And one of the things that has cropped up again and again in us European relations over the decades, is that the U.S. tends to be much more cavalier about the risks that it's asking its mm -hmm. European allies to bear uh, because they'll be the ones paying the price uh, in most cases uh, if there is a conflict. They'll be the ones paying, paying the heaviest price, um, in, at least in a conventional war. And so we, we tend to, to play fast and loose with those risks uh, more than many of our European partners. And, and so I think that that's something that people in Europe have internalized, or many people in Europe have internalized, uh, that we're prepared to, that we are sort of using them as pawns in some ways. Uh, and they don't, they don't want to be used that way, uh, which is understandable. Um, I think 
what one of the things that we we ought to be looking at is why are we sending more troops to Europe uh, right now when there is evidently some greater uh, support, some greater enthusiasm in Europe for doing more for their own security. Um, this is really the, the perfect opportunity for them to step up and fill the void uh, and to, to meet these new challenges that may exist uh, if, if they do in fact perceive Russia to be more threatening. If they don't actually feel that much more threatened by Russia, because Russia has proved itself to be less powerful than it seemed to be, uh, then then maybe there isn't even a gap to be filled. Maybe we're 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 fighting over the wrong thing. We're worried about the wrong thing. Instead of asking them to do more, we could do less without anybody having to pick up the slack, because the the threat is objectively not as great as we once thought it was. Yeah. And I mean, we're kind of skirting around the elephant in the room here, which is Russia, Ukraine and, and the war uh, that's been going on since since February. And I feel like while this conversation would have been well and good and positive and, and moving things in perhaps in a more positive direction before February 2022, it's going to be even more difficult to convince skeptics of this idea of a European-led security system um, now that they are emboldened with this idea that there is this Russia threat in Europe and have attached themselves to the idea that, that Vladimir Putin and Russia actually want to go beyond the war in Ukraine and um, could be really putting um, their neighbors in in peril if we aren't there to save them and bolster their defenses. And so uh, Anatole Levin was writing about this um, in September 2021, where he talked about the uh, sustaining deterrence in Europe amendment that was inserted in uh, the Defense Authorization Act last year. And I have to look up whether or not it actually stayed in the, the final document, um, because as you know, the document is like thousands and thousands of pages long. But essentially, it was in, introduced by Congressman Mike Rogers of Alabama, and it basically submitted, uh, it, it directed the Secretary of Defense to submit a report to uh, the defense committees no later than this year. Um, on the department's strategy for enhancing the U.S. Forward, forward presence on NATO's eastern periphery to include assessments of possibilities for potential force structure en enhancements. Ergo, you know, more troops on the border. Now, I mean, that's all sort of been um, overtaken by events because we are sending those enhancements. But that's just to say that there are members of Congress who, even before what's happened in Ukraine, have been pushing to get more um, U.S. military involvement in these countries, and they are not going to be easily convinced that we are not needed uh, at this time uh, to lead security there. And so I feel like um, there are rational, reasonable voices. I know that Doug Bandow has been talking about this for some time. Uh, the folks at Defense Priorities, the folks at the National Interests, Responsible Statecraft, the American Conservative, a lot of these realist publications have been arguing 
for this rethink of NATO, rethink of European security for some time. But, you know, we have to face it. There is a Washington establishment along with an international establishment, the NATO alliance, Brussels, EU, who really like the idea of of this U.S.-led security structure. And it's going to be hard to convince them to really turn the ship around. Well, it will. There's a lot of entrenched opposition to making any serious changes, and and that opposition has gotten a lot stronger on account of the war. Uh, So, I mean, so much so that now that we have uh, an estimated hundred thousand troops in Europe, uh, which is which is uh, up by uh, a couple tens of thousands uh, over where it was, uh, there there will be tremendous resistance to ever bringing that number back down in the near future, uh, because any time anyone will suggest that it will be seen as uh, a concession or a retreat in the face of aggression. And, and that's how it's going to be framed. Uh, but what we, I think what we have to do to, to get around that is to focus on uh, what actually makes the most sense uh, in terms of both Euro, US and European security uh, and keeping European states perpetually as dependence on US security provision uh, cannot be the best thing in the long-term interests of either our country or uh, that of our allies. And so, so we, we have to look beyond the, the, the immediate situation and think about where we want the, the security architecture of Europe to be in another 50 years. And do we want to be the ones continuing to have to ride to the rescue and, and to be the backstop of European security a hundred years after the end of World War II. I, I don't think anybody would, would, would want that to be the, the way things are done, with, with the exception of maybe a few vested interests. But it, but it doesn't make sense for the U.S. to continue to be that deeply involved in providing for European security when European countries have more than enough resources now uh, to provide that for themselves. And I think now also have the political will to provide it if we would, as I said before, get out of their way. Uh, every time we, we rush in to, to demonstrate our leadership, as we like to call it, we are effectively suppressing their willingness to do more for themselves. And, and we actually actively discourage them from doing more for themselves on their own, because there are many people in Washington that still covet that leadership role Mm-hmm. more than they are concerned about what makes the most sense in terms of U.S. or allied security. And so it's the, the way the way around that opposition is to, I think, to call it out for its irrational attachment to this old way of doing things and, and to say we don't, we are not, trapped into doing it this way forever just because this is how we did it during the Cold War and, and the post-Cold War era. We can we can make responsible changes uh, to our troop levels in Europe and to our involvement in European security uh, and, and gradually shift it over uh, to European partners without creating any sort of vacuum or creating the sort of instability that people are afraid of. Uh, but in order to do that, you actually have to to set out some vision for where you want to be at the end of that process. And I and I fear what a lot of the governments 
are doing right now is simply looking for a way to keep things as much as they can the same, uh, because, of course, it's much easier to simply let things go as they have gone uh, for many decades. And so I, you know, I think that's going to end up putting us in a bad position down the road because we'll still be on the hook for all of these responsibilities uh, when Europe could have easily taken them over and then probably could have already started taking them over 20 years ago. Uh, and we'll still be doing it in the 2050s, 2060s uh, for them instead. And I, that, that doesn't make sense. And I don't think the American public is going to tolerate it indefinitely. There will come a point where our endless subsidizing of their defense will become intolerable to people here. Uh, and then you may end up with a more rapid withdrawal uh, later on that, that ends up being more destabilizing than if you did it slowly and methodically earlier. Our guest today is Ali Wine. He is a senior analyst with Eurasia's, Eurasia Group's global macro geopolitics practice, focusing on U.S.-China relations and great power competition. He is the author of the new book, America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. It's really a privilege to be with you. Uh, yeah, it's uh, good that we get to talk about the book. I, I really enjoyed the book. It was very Thank interesting. You. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, and I actually wrote a review of it for Responsible Statecraft a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, it has some very I think, important things to say about thinking through the implications of this uh very commonly accepted framing of foreign policy as great power competition or, or focusing our foreign policy on great power competition uh, as, as the, the sort of the, the guiding light of where we should be going in the future. Um, and just in, in general terms, uh, what are the potential risks of defining U.S. foreign policy primarily in terms of opposing and outcompeting Russia and China? Well, Dan, thank you uh, again. Just you know, thank you for having me on on the show. So uh, I, I hasten to note because I the book the book does set forth a critique, and, and I will uh, I will uh, flesh out that critique uh, presently. But I do hasten to note, and I try to make this point clear in the book. Uh, I posit this distinction between thinking about great power competition descriptively on the one hand, and thinking about it prescriptively. So, so descriptively, uh, I, I hasten to note here, and and I did so in the book as well. Uh, I don't think the great power competition descriptively captures the totality uh, of contemporary geopolitics, but I do think that it distills some important trends. And I, I suspect that folks, regardless of where they sit on the ideological spectrum or which theory of international relations uh, they subscribe to, I, I think that most folks would agree that uh, the United States today, it's relatively not as influential as it was at the end of the Cold War, or even at the turn of the century. And I think that most folks would agree that China and Russia, America's principal uh, nation-state competitors, that they are more able, they are more willing to, to push back against U.S. influence. So descriptively, I, I believe the great power competition, as I believe it's understood, and as I believe that most, most others understand it, it does distill some important dynamics. Uh, with that uh, important caveat, uh, in terms of shifting to uh, the critique that I set forth, I, I would argue that there are Broadly, three uh, three concerns that I have with advancing great power competition as a prescriptive framework, as opposed to just leaving it as a as a descriptive one. Uh, 
The, the first critique is that I think that it inclines the United States to formulate a foreign policy that's more defensive uh, than affirmative and more reactive than proactive. And if you have a foreign policy that is not exclusively, but if you have a foreign policy that's principally designed uh, in, a, in opposition to uh, countries, uh, in a way you're ceding the, the terms of the competition to your competitors. And so the United States risks putting itself in a situation in which it's anticipating what is China going to do next? What is Russia going to do next? And then the United States will respond. So you almost intrinsically place yourself uh, on a competitive back footing because you're anticipating what it is that your competitors will do. You're waiting to see what they will do and then you will respond. And so even though even though it might seem at first glance that great power competition has the virtue of restoring strategic clarity to U.S. foreign policy by identifying clearly our principal competitors and defining foreign policy in principally oppositional terms, I think that it risks actually giving China and Russia the, the, the competitive upper hand. So that's that's critique, broad critique number one. Uh, the, the second broad critique that I would articulate, and I actually think that this critique ironically, should be a source of, of confidence, not, not unbridled confidence for the United States, but a source of quiet confidence for the United States. I think that if in the immediate years after the Cold War and perhaps all the way through the global financial crisis, I think that if the United States veer too far in the direction of understating the competitive potential of China and Russia and others, um, I think that now the pendulum may perhaps be overcorrecting. We don't want to discount the competitive potential of China and Russia, but we don't want to aggrandize it either. And I fear that great power competition is a prescriptive framework. It runs the latter risk of, of aggrandizing the competitive or strategic acumen of China and Russia. Now, China and Russia, um, I, I want to be clear, um, I don't think that either of them is poised for a dramatic Soviet-style collapse. I think that both of them are formidable competitors. They are multidimensional competitors. And I think that they're competitors that are likely to endure, notwithstanding all of their socioeconomic challenges at home and notwithstanding the increasingly uh, vexing strategic environments that they confront externally. But uh, China and Russia, they're not immune from strategic hubris. Uh, they make strategic errors. And, and we've seen those strategic errors in, in recent months and recent years. So China, uh, with a course of diplomacy that it's been pursuing since Xi Jinping took the helm of China, and particularly, and I think a course of diplomacy that I think we've seen intensify since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, I think that China has increasingly estranged itself from the advanced industrial democracies that still wield the balance of global power. And Russia, of course, with its invasion of Ukraine, I, I think has committed an act of, of strategic self-sabotage. Now, neither China nor Russia is gonna be relegated to pariah status, far from it. And we see that uh, we see that China and Russia, they're cultivating uh, deeper ties in what one might call broadly the global South. So they're not gonna be consigned to pariah status, hardly, and they're deeply integrated into to global politics, but. I don't think that we should imagine them in strategic terms to be 10 feet tall. The third and final critique uh, that I'll set forth and then I'll stop because I realize I probably have given uh, more of a long-winded answer to your initial question than you had been uh, expecting or that you had, uh, had wanted. Um, the third and final critique is, um, it's a kind of a prosaic critique, but it's one that I think is worth articulating nonetheless. Um, the United States, I don't think, I don't think that there is a a tenable analytical and, and, and policy scenario in which the United States can advance its vital national interests uh, solely in alignment with like-minded countries. Um, I think that there, there is an understandable hope given, you know, given Russia's barbarity in Ukraine, uh, given China's you know, really uh, concerning and destabilizing actions vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Um, I think that there is, there is a hope in some quarters that the United States might be able to work just with like-minded countries and advance its interests on, say, 
uh, climate change, pandemic disease, arms control, uh, macro, macroeconomic stability, and so forth. But I think that China and Russia, um, they're too large. Uh, they're too large uh, militarily, militarily and economically. They're too important in geopolitical terms for the United States to imagine they can just bypass them and advance its own vital national interests. And so as unpalatable as the thought of cooperation with China and Russia might be, as difficult as it might be to define cooperative avenues of those two countries, it's not clear to me that the United States has a choice. Uh, and I worry that great power competition embraced as a prescriptive framework. Uh, I, I fear that it runs the risk of framing cooperative undertakings with China and Russia as fool's errands at best, and perhaps even worse, as demonstrations of strategic weakness. Right. And that actually brings me to another question that I had for you uh, about this issue of engaging with these states. Uh, if we if we see them as rivals, uh, what is the appropriate role for diplomacy with them? Uh, in, in the book, you write, sustained silence that calcifies antagonism is more liable to undercut America's vital national interests than piecemeal dialogue that encounters roadblocks. And I thought that was that was very good. It made it made sense. It, if you look at the U.S.-Soviet relationship, we were able and willing to engage with them on issues where we could find some common ground, arms control, for example. Uh, and then we were able to work with them constructively, even though we were still very much at odds with each other in many other ways. Uh, what are some of the issues that you think the U.S. might be able to discuss constructively with the Russian and Chinese governments? Sure. And, and, and I do, just, just before getting um, into your immediate question, I think that that historical backdrop you provided is, is, is important. And I, I think it's not only important, but I think it should also be a source of a reassurance uh, for the United States, even though it, it might seem like cold comfort right now, just given the the severity of, uh, of the strategic frictions and the number of strategic frictions that the United States has with both China and Russia. But, but just to, to dwell on this point briefly, I mean, during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union, they, they regarded one another as existential adversaries. And and they came to the precipice of nuclear war on a frightening number of occasions. Uh, these were, these are two powers that didn't have uh, any love lost for one another. And they cooperated with one another. They engaged in diplomacy, uh, not because they labored under any illusions about what, you know, what fruit might be born of that diplomacy or, or might be born by that diplomacy, not because they were starry eyed. They engaged with one another uh, because they realized that it was in their vital national interest to do so. And so I, I want to make one. So there's a historical point. There's a historical precedent. So the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, particularly, particularly, I would say, the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was a real wake up call uh, for Washington and Moscow. They cooperated not only on arms control, uh, but they also cooperated, I think, lesser known, but they cooperated importantly on uh, polio vaccine research. So if the United States and the Soviet Union as existential adversaries were able to find the, um, the political wherewithal uh, domestically to, to engage in cooperation, it, shouldn't, it, it certainly should not be today beyond the, uh, the reach of diplomats in, in the three great powers, the United States, China, and Russia, to do the same. So there's a historical precedent, number one. Number two, I think there's a point to be made just about the way in which we cast terms such as diplomacy, engagement, and cooperation. I, I think they sometimes now are almost used uh, in a pejorative sense. But I, I view diplomacy, engagement, cooperation, I view them as honestly value neutral or value agnostic terms. Diplomacy to me is just something that you do in international relations. So diplomacy means as it, I, I'm defining the term or conceptualizing the term in a very uh, simplistic fashion, but diplomacy to me means that you 
interact with country, other countries. Some of those countries will be allies. Some of them will be partners. Some of them will be competitors. Some of them will be adversaries. But you, you engage in diplomacy because you don't have a choice, because you can't advance your vital national interests in isolation. So diplomacy, to me, it's just it's something that you do. It's routine. It's just an inbuilt task of uh, of foreign policy. So I don't I don't I don't ascribe any particular norms to diplomacy. I, I think of diplomacy again in a value uh, neutral way. Uh, now turning to you know sort of the immediate question, you know where where can the United States cooperate with China and Russia? I mean, given how given how severely America's relationships with both China and Russia have deteriorated, I I think that we need to almost sort of bracket the question into to two categories. There is perhaps in the second category where the United States might be able to cooperate with China and Russia. I think in the first immediate category uh, is where the United States has to cooperate with China and Russia. And I think that the, the foundational objective of great power relations must be the avoidance of great power war. And so in category one, I would say, what are steps that the United States, China and Russia can collectively take to avoid a great power war? And that means you know, in, the case of, uh, in the case of the United States and Russia, ensuring that even as this war between Russia and Ukraine grinds on, ensuring that NATO and Russia do not come into direct armed confrontation that could theoretically escalate to the nuclear level. I think that that confrontation would be uh, catastrophic. And I think that the United States has an abiding vital national interest in avoiding that outcome. So what are what can the United States and Russia do so that even if domestic politics in both countries militate uh, against public facing diplomacy, I think that it's it's difficult to imagine right now that that President Biden and President Putin would would publicly uh, you know meet. Uh, but certainly, uh, but certainly in the United States uh, and in Russia, uh, empowering uh, empowering high level diplomats and empowering working groups in in quiet ways and perhaps even in private ways to to engage to communicate regularly to ensure that they're able that they have hotlines open that they have communication channels open to ensure that even as the overall relationship deteriorates that they have established guardrails and mechanisms in place uh, that that can prevent great power war it's that much more important i think in in the case of the united states and china for two reasons one just given the size of, of China's economy and given China's integration into the global economy, I think that any kind of confrontation, military confrontation between the United States and China would be that much more devastating than one between the United States and Russia. So they're just, I think that the stakes are a lot higher. Two, at least because of the Cold War, um, one of the, the Cold War bequeathed to the United States and Russia a pretty substantial, pretty well-developed apparatus of military-to-military communication. For various reasons, the United States and China really haven't developed that kind of apparatus. I think that they're trying to develop that kind of apparatus of military-to-military communication. And the United States has made, uh, from what I can gather, the United States has been making very proactive efforts to try and initiate some kind of military-to-military dialogue. Uh, As far as I can tell, those efforts have largely been rebuffed by China, and that's concerning. But the United States and China need to build up that military-to-military dialogue. So, so in category one of cooperation, the question is, where is cooperation an existential necessity uh, and in the short term? And I think the short-term objective has to be avoiding great power war. Uh, if they can avoid great power war, and I believe that they can and must, I, I don't believe that war is preordained. I don't think that war is inevitable. And um, one of my actually before I turn to sort of category two, one of my big concerns actually is that 
it seems that when we talk now about great power war, it seems and it makes me uncomfortable that we increasingly seem to be talking about great power war as a question of when rather than if. And that fatalism can generate self-fulfilling prophecies. And it's very important for policymakers in all three great powers to, to kind of reclaim their sense of agency. A war is not preordained. A war is a result of decisions. Um, so category one. Category two, there is a whole uh, litany of issues, and I think it's a familiar litany of issues, where, uh, where the United States, China, and Russia can cooperate. So if you turn to the case of the United States and China, um, if you look at uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken's speech uh, recently in which he laid out America's strategy towards China, he enumerated a number of areas in which the United States and China can cooperate, should cooperate, and must cooperate. So again, uh, foods, you know, food, combating food insecurity, uh, mitigating uh, climate change, uh, combating uh, pandemic disease, uh, shoring up the stability of the global economy. He enumerated a number of areas in which the two countries uh, can, should, and must cooperate. You know, the list with the United States and Russia probably right now is, is smaller, but uh, there has to be some there has to be some baseline of diplomatic interaction on uh, on arms control, on nuclear proliferation, um, again avoiding great power war. Uh, and so the real question I think is because obviously category one and category two they're not. You can't, uh, there are limits, I think, to how much you can compartmentalize them. So I think objective number one is we have to avoid great power war. That has to be objective number one. And I think that that objective, is achieve, the achievement of that objective, I think, is a, is a precondition in many ways for moving to category two. I'll just make one last point and then, and then stop. Um, I think it's critically important that uh, we have as much leader-to-leader level dialogue as possible. So in the, in the case of the United States and China, um, you, because the U.S.-China relationship is deteriorating so rapidly, you have some observers who take a rather dim view of continued dialogue between President Biden and President Xi. Um, and, and my feeling is that it's because the relationship is so strained that that leader-to-leader-level dialogue becomes that much more important. It's perhaps one of the only guardrails that now exists in the U.S.-China relationship. So I don't think that we should scoff at dialogue between President Biden and his counterpart in China. I don't think that we should preemptively dismiss the, the, the benefits that might come of uh, what, what may well be an in-person conversation between the two leaders uh, later, uh, later this year, I believe in the fall. Uh, we shouldn't scoff at those efforts and we should be encouraging those efforts to impose guardrails on the relationship. We should be doing whatever we can to empower working level groups in both countries to talk with one another. Uh, and the reality is that whether we whether we believe that cooperation is futile, whether we believe that cooperation is an exhibition of strategic weakness, um, there's no ready way of disentangling uh, disentangling America's society and economy from China's society and economy, from Russia's society and economy. Uh, selective disentanglement will take place, but the residual uh, fabric of interdependence on, on a range of issues is still very strong. So I think the question is not so much um, do we cooperate? Because I don't see what the alternative is. It's when do we cooperate? How do we cooperate? On what terms? Who initiates the the conversations around cooperation? And what fruits are born? But I, I think that it, again, it's really a question of something that has to be done, not whether not whether uh, it will be done. Right. And and coming back to the relationship with China, uh, you you talk about that at some length, and. Uh, uh, one of the things you say is that America's mission then is not to achieve a decisive victory over an existential adversary, 
but to develop a durable modus vivendi with a complex competitor. Uh, and I think that makes sense, uh, given that they're not going anywhere, we're presumably not going anywhere. Uh, we, we have to learn to live together. Uh, do you think the Manichaean and exceptionalist tendencies in our foreign policy discourse now make it politically very difficult or maybe even impossible to, to reach that modus vivendi? Uh, are, are you concerned that the, the, the competition with China will uh, tend towards a, a zero-sum approach uh, where any gain by them is seen as a loss for us? So it doesn't have to. And I think that, you know, going back to, you know, going back to a point that I was making just a couple of minutes ago about a war. So, um, you know, war is not inevitable. Uh, Zero-sum competition is not inevitable. Now, I don't want to sound overly sanguine. Uh, you know, competition between the United States and China, I think is kind of inbuilt into the relationship. So if you go back to, if you go back to the U.S. opening to China, the U.S. opening to China was predicated on, I, I think, again, I'm being reductionist here, but I think that there were sort of two, two broad uh, strains of thinking at play. You know, one strand was it's not good for a country of China's proportions to be this essentially the, kind of the Nixonian conception uh, that he articulated, that Richard Nixon articulated in his famous foreign affairs essay, 19, I believe, 1967. But, uh, but Nixon said that it's not, it's not wise for the United States to leave a country of China's proportions in, in isolation, in isolation and, and impoverishment in perpetuity. Uh, so there has to be some effort to bring a country of China's proportions out from the cold. And of course, the second effort was there was a desire to enlist China's help in counterbalancing the Soviet Union. Um, but the United States and China, there wasn't, there really has never been an organic basis for, for amity between the two countries. Um, and with the collapse of the Soviet Union, one of the foundational pretexts for strengthening our relationship with China disappeared, namely uh, the collapse of, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the, the desire or the the need to enlist China as a counterbalance, that, that pretext basically disappeared. So the United States and China have never really had an organic basis for, uh, for, for trust. They've never had an organic basis for cultivating their, their ties. And so I think some distrust is kind of inbuilt into the relationship. Competition, I think, is kind of inbuilt into the relationship. But, um, but Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, he makes the point that competition, even if it's inbuilt, it can, strategic competition, it can be managed. And so he's articulated a framework of managed strategic competition. So one, um, I don't think that zero-sum competition is inevitable, just as I don't think that war is inevitable. Um, and I think that a precondition to, we don't know, we don't necessarily know what that modus vivendi uh, will look like. We don't necessarily know what the parameters of durable cohabitation will look like. Uh, but I think that there are some steps that both countries can take to make a durable cohabitation more likely. And I think that one, you know, one kind of step that both countries can take is to acknowledge the reality that each is likely, that the other is likely to endure as a major power. So uh, as, as you said in your, in your question, uh, China, I think that for all of its, you know, for, for all of its myriad socioeconomic challenges and for its, all of its ex external constraints, I think it's likely to endure. And the United States is likely to endure. The United States has defied many prognostications of decline. Uh, it has a very storied uh, capacity historically for regenerating uh, its sources of competitive advantage at home and abroad. So I view the United States and China as enduring pillars of geopolitics. And I think that the sooner the two countries accept that the other is going to endure, and the sooner they get away from thinking about their relationship in a 
uh, or thinking about their relationship in terms of a power transition, the sooner they'll be able to get to, to doing the hard work of forging that durable modus vivendi. So, um, so one, I don't think that zero-sum competition is inevitable. I don't think the war is inevitable. Uh, I think the question is, you know, how soon will the two countries accept one another as enduring pillars of geopolitics rather than imagining that there will be some power transition in which either the United States uh, marginal confines, consigns China to a marginal role or in which China overtakes the United States for global preeminence and relegates the United States to a marginal role. I, I think that both of those outcomes are extremely uh, unlikely. Uh, one last point that I'll make is um, even though this points, it, it feels shopworn and hackneyed, the reality is that a lot of the transnational challenges that sometimes get short shrift in discussions of strategic competition, they're only going to grow in number, they're only going to grow in complexity, and they're only going to grow in severity. And those transnational challenges will increasingly entangle these societies and economies of the United States and China. And so um, I, I, have a, I have a feeling that you know, as those challenges intensify uh, in or grow in number, grow in complexity, grow in severity, that I do think that there will be a growing recognition in, in both you know, Washington and Beijing that however begrudging their and however minimal their cooperation might be, that they actually will stand to lose considerably um, if they don't maintain some baseline of diplomatic interaction. I think that's right. Um, and, I, and I think you, you point towards how we can uh, try to find that uh, that common ground or find those issues that we can work together on uh, very well. One, one of the things that I found very interesting in the book is uh, towards the end, you lay out a number of principles uh, for suggesting how to proceed from here uh, for the U.S. And, and many of those principles focus on internal American renewal for its own sake. You say it has to be an explicit objective of our foreign policy and not just a byproduct of our competition with other powers. And this is part of your point that we need to have an affirmative vision of our foreign policy and not simply be reactive. Um, and that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what, what are some examples of what that inter internal renewal would look like? Uh, well, where should we be uh, focusing our efforts uh, here at home? Well, it's a, it's a full agenda, to, to say the least, in terms of, of internal renewal. I've, I've mentioned this book. Uh, I, I mentioned a book by uh, Suzanne Mettler and Robert Lieberman in in other conversations that I've had subsequent to the book's publication, and, and I'd like to mention it again here, it's called Four Threats. And, and Suzanne Mettler and Robert Lieberman argue in the book that um, historically in periods of uh, domestic trial in the United States, that various combinations of those four threats have arrayed themselves to challenge, democracy, to challenge U.S. democracy. They make the argument that what makes the present moment of domestic trial so uh, singularly dangerous in their view um, they make the case, and I think they make a very compelling case, that all four of those threats are now present. And it's the confluence, uh, that kind of that quadrilateral confluence that really undermines U.S. democracy and, and te will test U.S. democracy in a way that it hasn't been tested before. So there's a very full agenda for uh, for uh, for internal renewal. So um, dealing with the dealing with sort of the multifaceted scar tissue from COVID-19, so the economic, so the health scar tissue, the economic scar tissue, the political scar tissue, um, even though I think psychologically the United States in many ways is moving beyond COVID-19, I think that the ramifications, the full, the, the full view of ramifications of, of COVID-19, or I, sorry, the full set of ramifications of COVID-19, I don't think will become fully apparent and won't fully come into view for, for many years, perhaps even for many decades to come. But, but nonetheless, dealing with the, the multifaceted consequences of COVID-19, 
dealing with income and wealth inequality. Again, it seems like a, a shop-worn issue, but it's an increasingly uh, important one. Um, I think that if you look at, you know, whether you look at Republicans, Democrats, independents, there is a widespread view among Americans that globalization uh, has not served uh, the cause of the middle class, that U.S. foreign policy has not served uh, the cause of the middle class. And if you just look at the data, uh, compare income and wealth inequality today in 2022 with where they were, say, in 2010 or 2011, around the time of the Occupy Wall Street movements. Now, even though the Occupy Wall Street movements in 2010, 2011, 2012, they did bring a lot of attention to income and wealth inequality in the United States, but income and wealth inequality have only grown worse in the interregnum. So income and wealth inequality, how do we manage those trends? Uh, political polarization and political dysfunction in Congress, again, shop-worn issues, but they not, only, they not only inhibit the ability of Americans to make common cause, they not only inhibit the ability of Congress to pass self-evidently necessary legislation, they also have very important foreign policy consequences. So even many of America's allies and partners currently, even though they are, even though many of America's core allies and partners are gratified by the, you know, the Biden administration's uh, return to multilateralism, its, um, its uh, embrace of international institutions, many of them are asking what's going to happen in your elections in 2024? Who's going to take office in 2025? So the vagaries, uh, the really the very, very wild oscillations and fluctuations in America's domestic politics, they cast doubt in the eyes of our allies and partners about the consistency of U.S. foreign policy. So finding some way of you know, developing a, a renewed sense of common cause and common purpose will be critically important. So the agenda is the agenda is very full. And, and the point that I try to make in the book, which I, I appreciate you bringing up, is that you know, I don't want to suggest that external competition doesn't have any role to play in spurring internal renewal. It does. And I think that if you look at, for example, the uh, the major uh, infrastructure bill that Congress passed last November, if you look at the Chips and Science Act that, uh, that, that passed more recently, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, commits $369 billion to decarbonization efforts, it's the largest such investment by the federal government. Um, external competition or external competition, it can play a role in spurring internal renewal. But one, it, it should be one tool in a large toolkit for spurring internal renewal. It shouldn't be a crutch. So there's a difference between thinking about competitive anxiety as one tool in a large toolkit and being incapacitated to address socioeconomic challenges without invoking China and Russia. So that's one point. The second point is that given, I think just given the erosion of just sort of America's kind of national fabric and given the intensification, the really the viciousness now of political polarization, I think that it would be mistaken to assume that invocations of China and Russia will will mollify political polarization. Um, and I, I've been very persuaded by the scholarship of Rachel Myrick, who is at Duke University. She's a professor at Duke University. Uh, she's investigated this uh, question very, very thoroughly. And she cast doubt on the notion that external competition will uh, will kind of be a, a bomb, uh, not B-O-M-B, B-A-L-M, uh, be a bomb for, for America's domestic um, domestic trials. So Yes, let it, let's leverage competitive anxiety to the extent that we can, but one, don't use it as a crutch. Two, recognize that competitive anxiety, while it can be harnessed constructively, it can also be harnessed uh, in very counterproductive ways. It can be used, um, it can be used to marginalize certain uh, ethnic and racial minorities. It can be used to other certain communities. 
Um, and, it, and I think that it can cast a, a very concerning picture of the United States abroad. So let's leverage it as one tool as part of a broad toolkit. Let's not use it as a crutch. And let's really think about kind of, I, I, I sometimes posit this fill in the blank exercise. Um, if you were to do a fill in the blank exercise saying, U.S. foreign policy should seek to accomplish fill in the blank. How far could you go in filling that blank without once invoking China or Russia? Similarly at home, America's democracy should seek to accomplish fill in the blank. How far could you go in filling the blank, filling in the blank without once invoking China or Russia? Um, I believe that the more we can fill in those blanks without invoking China or Russia, the more we will steady our competitive position, the more confidence we will project, and the more durable our foreign policy will be, regardless of the decisions that China, Russia, or any other competitor makes. On that note, I think it's a good place to stop. Uh, we're, we're out of time, but uh, I want to thank you again, uh, Ali Wine. Uh, thanks for coming on to talk about your book, America's Great Power Opportunity. Uh, I recommend it, and uh, thanks again. Dan, thank you so much for having me. It was a real privilege to talk with you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.